0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention, Daniel Diggins! (laughs) Greetings, dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out what happens to the vampire with a soul. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at DoorDash and at ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. Um, I am actually talking to you from my car in Davis Park in Pontra Vija, Florida. I was going to do this from home, but then it turned out there were workmen coming to the house. And so hopefully this will all work out. But if you hear the occasional uh, bird chirp small kid falling on a skateboard, all that kind of stuff. That's why just, you know, I wanted to be clear with everybody. So we have, um, uh, old time favorite fan favorite at the, at the remnant to who periodically checks in with us to explain why we can't have nice things. (laughs) Uh, Scott Linsicum, uh, international man of mystery, trade lawyer, uh, trade scholar and, uh, nacho aficionado and hater of blue Jays. Correct. Welcome back to the remnant. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So can you so for people who don't know, I wrote about this in the G file last week. We did a no. you, you did a thing about how Blue Jays get bad. They have, they have bad great PR. PR. They have great right. PR. Right. Insofar as people think they're better than they are. So mm-hmm. what ex, what precisely is your brief against Blue Jays? and we will get to the wonky trade stuff shortly.
1: Well, I mean, really, it started with that video of the mantis um, taking out the murder hornet. And I thought about yeah. how the praying mantis really has excellent PR. I mean, it's a praying mantis. And yet they're pretty um, terrifying insects when you when you get into the the weeds. Um, and so I decided to run the poll and, of course, include one of my most hated animals um, that does have wonderful PR, the blue jay. Um, and my, my beef against the Blue Jay is that, you know, when you look at their uh, nesting habits, they basically murder other birds, babies, and then steal their houses. And yet they are deified in, the ma- in Major League Baseball. Um, for example, they're, you know, a widely praised bird. Um, and really, in general, they're just bad, bad creatures. Um, and so I included them. Uh, of course, the panda, ubiquitous. Um, you know, uh, and, um, and then the praying mantis as well, um, Panda ran away with it. Um, which, uh, again, as we discussed over Twitter actually raises a rather, um, a, a philosophical conundrum because if they win the poll, that actually means they don't have very good PR. Um, which is very, it's all very circular, but anyway, um, also I'm a Texas Rangers fan. And, um, so the Toronto Blue Jays, um, hold a particularly low spot in my um, ranking of things, uh, so that that of course adds to the the hatred. So, um,
0: I, I'm basically with you on the Blue Jays. They are a really obnoxious bird. Yeah. I mean, there's they're they're sort of like um, you know certain really hot female celebrities who are nice to look at but just mean. Yeah. They're sort of like that, but the animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, They're the mean notes of, of the animal kingdom. Yeah. You know, and, and murderers,
1: you know, uh, yeah. they you should call them the murder jays. Per- see, then that gets to the, again, it gets to the PR. These hornets are murder hornets. I have yet to see conclusive evidence of murder and, you know, mens rea intent they need for to establish that. And yet the blue jays, which we know, We've seen documentary evidence of the murder. Instead, they're, they're called Blue Jays, again, and they're a part of a baseball team. Just ridiculous. Um, you know who I
0: left out, which I was kicking myself about? I mean, um, sorry for the truck going by. Um, so, so I left out um, in my 1,200-word digression, um, dolphins. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. dolphins, dolphins are rapists. <laughs> dolphins like are, are gang rapists and it's unbelievable. And um, I'm still, and yet I am still oddly pro dolphin. Um, yeah. Even
1: though I guess, you know, me too has not hit the dolphin world. yet, <laughs> Which is surprising given, you know, how uh, smart they are. You would think that that, that had, would have trickled down by now. Yeah. I, I I've, I've actually thought about this
0: a lot in that, I am fascinated at how it's kind of a stony point, but I think it's an actually interesting one that in all of like the Disney Pixar kind of Hollywood animated animal stuff. Um, the only way you can actually convince people that uh, say polar bears or any of these animals, really lions are great is by making them act like human beings. Yeah. Cause if they actually acted like themselves, yeah, You you know, like try to make a Disney movie where you actually show the lions tearing out the throat of the gazelle. Yeah. You know, the kids are only barfing
1: in the aisles, but we need but a, anyway. real, a real Disney adventures movie. I think that'd be, that'd be a, a big hit with the kids. <laughs> I, I think it would. Although did you ever watch Johnny quest when you were a kid? A little bit. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, starring Mike Pence. It,
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, if you um if you watch it today, it is so unpc. PC. Yeah. Oh, um, they use real guns. They shoot quote unquote savages all the time. Oh yeah. <laughs> um and I think they kill animals in it, but I'd have to go back and check on that one. Um anyway. All right, so uh it's the end of the world as we know it. Um the economy is uh Um, it's the kind of thing not to get too graphic, but it's, it's not even just going down the toilet. It's sort of like, you got to call a plumber because it's, it's clogging up the pipes further down the road. Um, what's your take on how things are going and how we're going to get out of this?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, it's, it's a mess as you, as you said, and we really have hit this point where, um, we have the. Uh, hor- We're in the horrible position of you can't keep things locked down, both economically and I think politically and psychologically. Um, I mean, I think you're starting to see Americans kind of hit their breaking point. But at the same time, we don't have uh, the optimal level of testing and all of that stuff, and certainly uh, don't have the medical breakthroughs we need to, to beat this thing. And so we've we've hit this point where. You're going, you know. You're seeing these gradual reopenings, um, but uh, people aren't going to uh, just resume life as as we know it or as we knew it. Um, so it's going to keep economic activity depressed. Now, I'm I'm generally pre reopening. Uh, I mean, granted, I have the luxury of living down here in North Carolina, where we've had a a relatively easy go of it. Um, our hospitalization rates and free ICU beds and all of that stuff on terms of resources are excellent. Um, we have a really big problem in nursing homes, but but um, broader uh, than that, the the virus is pretty uh, stable and under control. So so here, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense now. Um, so you said, but you said you're pro reopening. Yeah, pro reopening. So
0: I think. I think you said pre-reopening oh, and I was pro, curious pro. where, where and, that was going.
1: Yeah, and so but you know I'm a big fan of localism uh, in in this sense. Um you know I one of the things that's very frustrating is um you know even you know being in the DC media complex of sorts but living outside of it um is watching everyone um make New York DC even, you know, places out West, San Francisco, wherever, Seattle, uh, as kind of the the paradigm or the example, whereas, you know, the the rest of us in the hinterlands uh, really have a completely different situation, you know, in terms of density and in terms of economic activity and and the the nature of the businesses here and that kind of stuff. And so um, I think that it, of course, needs to be, if not State by state, than county by county. I mean, we again in North Carolina. There's a huge difference between out here in Raleigh compared to what's going on in Charlotte. Right. Um, and and so I I wish that was the level of the debate, but it's not, and um, that's I think a problem. Um, now back going going back to the economy, it looks like we're going to have what they're calling a swoosh. Uh, instead of a V-shaped recovery, it's going to be kind of this straight down and in a very gradual uptick again, because it looks like individuals, not states, were the primary source of the the decline in economic activity. Um, and I've talked to people here who say that their companies, regardless of what the governor does, they're staying closed. Um, right. And so, and you combine all of that, and I think it's going to be a really tough slog. Um, The only good news, it seems recently, is that the vast majority of the layoffs, I think something like 70 plus percent, um, have been categorized as temporary, which is good um, because to the extent you can resume some economic activity, you want to pull those folks back into the labor market uh, as active workers as soon as possible. Um, But uh, I'm really worried also about there being kind of a, a two-level recovery, whereas those of us lucky enough to be in the knowledge economy, they call it. You know, these are um, lawyers and think tankers and people in the tech industry and and the rest who can work remotely and can work safely and whose jobs really didn't change too much, except they're now working from their cars or, or uh, home office. <laughs> um, those folks are just fine. And, you know, um, whereas you're going to have people really at the, at the low end of the wage scale, um, in face-to-face services or in manufacturing in food manufacturing, um, really struggling to get their lives back to normal and, uh, combine that with a stock market that, that is on the upswing. And I think it really, um, it creates a, 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 potentially troubling political dynamic as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, on the, on the reopening stuff, uh, I think I said that before said this before here. Um, you know, Dan Foster pointed out that we closed down the country based upon the worst hit area of the country, New York, and now we're reopening the country based upon the least hit (laughs) parts of the country. Neither of which is ideal. You know, um, I guess the question I have for you is, um, I am now convinced, you know, uh, Mike Gallagher and I were talking about this about how hawkery or hawkishness towards China is simply going to be the order of the day no matter what. Yeah. So the question is are we going to have smart hawkery or dumb hawkery? Right. Right. And if you talk to the smart hawks, they will say, they, some of them will tell you, well, you need a little dumb hawkery to arouse the passions to get people to buy on to the smart hawkery, yeah. which to me is a little dangerous, but I was wondering what your take on all that is.
1: Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that U.S.-China relations, uh, economically, geopolitically, whatever, um, are going to be at a very bad, in a bad place for a long time. Um, and the goal you know, not to sound all libertarian-ish, but the goal is to prevent a a hot war, right? We don't want armed conflict. Um, Now, um, the other, I think, goal is to kind of maintain stability in the global economy. Um, Look, we're not going to be best friends. Um, The Chimerica of the 2000s is not happening. We get that. But at the same time, look, you have the two largest economies in the world that are very intertwined. Um, They are both members of the World Trade Organization, and all these things. um, And multinational companies in both places are going to want to do business in both places. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure there. And so uh, decoupling is not, I don't think, a realistic, a full decoupling is not realistic, and quite frankly, I think kind of scary in terms of again going back to the hot war issues. Um, you know, countries that trade tend not to go to war with each other. That's that's good, um, but at the same time, look, there's no doubt that that there is going to be hawkishness. There's going to be bad blood, and so how do you manage it? Well, yeah, I I'm with you. I think that that it, letting the bad hawks Um, run point on this is a very bad idea. And it's a bad idea for a couple of reasons. One is that I think we've learned in the last few years that these things are not controllable, um, whether it's the animal spirits of of the voters and of the, the, um, you know, the, the general nationalism that this arouses in the United States and China. That's a problem. But also because these policies end up getting implemented sometimes, these bad hawkish policies. And that actually um, prevents smarter policies. Um, and you know, look, there's a great the the example I would use is um, turning away from something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was in large part intended to counterbalance uh, Chinese influence in the Asia Pacific region, um, to give close allies, whether it's you know Japan or whatever, um, an alternative to the Chinese market, while solidifying economic relations with potential uh, import alternatives like Vietnam. So there was this great opportunity there. And instead, so that's, I think, what you would call kind of smart hawkishness in the sense of creating legitimate alternatives to China um, and creating market incentives to do business with these countries. Um, Unfortunately, we, we ditched that on day one. Um, and instead, um just chose blanket tariffs, right? And um at the same time, um, ignored the potential for multilateral cooperation by attacking all of our friends and all this stuff. And so, um again, I think you know that's kind of dumb hawkishness um, uh, overtaking the the good. So, um, I'm not optimistic that you can kind of harness the the tiger, no pun intended um, and, and, and ride it to victory. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, in terms of dumb
0: hawkery, um, I mean, I'm with you that I think the tariffs were counterproductive. I thought TPP, whatever problems you had with TPP, there were, there were, there were smart criticisms of TPP and there yeah. were an enormous number of dumb criticisms yeah. and other worldly criticism of TPP, but, um, you know, it's, really kind of fascinating to watch what is happening, um, in the sort of eggheadosphere that we live in. Um, those guys at the American mind, which is a product of the Claremont Institute yeah. have been, and there's something, you know, like James Polis is not a dumb guy. I like James. Um, I think some of the stuff that they've been running is just, yeah, Back guano crazy. I mean, like one of the one headline was we need to cancel all our debt with China. Right, right. Which is like literally an act of war. Would 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 we're about to spend trillions of dollars on uh or we're spending trillions of dollars fighting the pandemic and 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 putting all of this money on the books of the Federal Reserve, and then you actually wanna like question this the the yeah. validity of our debt. I mean yeah. it just mindlessly, dangerously stupid stuff like that.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, that's exactly it. It it concerns me when, when you see that stuff coming from a place like, like Claremont because they're influential. And it, again, I don't, I don't think we can control. I mean, I think the last four years have taught us that populism is not a, a controllable vehicle for achieving your sound policy, uh, prescriptions, right? I mean, it, it, particularly on the international side, on trade and immigration, that these things tend to spiral out of control. And then the next thing, you know, you, you end up um, with a lot of the policies we've seen in the last few years. Um, but again, you're right. You know, those things have major repercussions. And I think that even if they're not implemented, having prominent people close to the administration or in the administration parroting this stuff um, can also have knock-on effects um, and real policy effects. Um, and again, in the in the goal of avoiding an actual war, um, I'd like to see us be a little smarter about it. You know, the way that I've always kind of put it is there is a place for aggressive multilateralism, so using the WTO as a vehicle through disputes and negotiations and all that kind of stuff, trying to isolate China there, um, there is a, a role for aggressive regionalism using things like the TPP. I would love to see us get closer to India, for example, um, as a, a counterweight. Um, and then aggressive unilateralism, really using a, a scalpel and not a sledgehammer or a shotgun to go after the truly legitimate um, and problematic uh, trade and economic policies, um, whether it's you know sanctions and export controls or going after state-sponsored hacking and that kind of stuff, but instead, um, you know, you just kind of have this blanket hawkishness, um, while at the same time that hawkishness is now providing a vehicle for some really idiotic protectionism and economic nationalism ideas. Um, You know, this whole supply chain repatriation thing that is just really popular. Um, You know, Bob Lighthizer yesterday in the New York Times uh, wrote about we're gonna bring back all our manufacturing and um, there's a big push right now among a lot of folks on the right and China is kind of the springboard for that. Um, And, you know, the idea of creating a Jones act for the pharmaceutical industry terrifies me um, Mm -hmm. as, as I think, you know, History shows it should. Uh, What
0: what, what do you explain to people what the Jones Act is and what that means? The
1: Jones Act is a law that's about 100 years old that requires any ships that are engaging in commerce between U.S. ports. So let's say you're shipping natural gas from Houston to Boston. Um, You have to use a ship that is not only made in the U.S., but crewed by Americans and owned by Americans and flagged in America. So the combination of all of these rules, so it's, it's about as strong protectionism as you can get. The United States have, has resisted any efforts to liberalize in whether it's the WTO or trade agreement negotiations or domestic law. The Jones Act lobby is extremely effective in keeping all of these things in place. Um, Just out of curiosity, because I've always wondered this,
0: Yeah, in the Jones Act lobby, who are, I mean, is it, is it, who is the, who are the most powerful players? Is it the, sh- the shipping companies shipping, or is it the, yeah. the longshoremen unions?
1: Both, but they, it's a extremely, I'll put it this way. It's, it's an, ex- they are a tip top organization in terms of lobbying to maintain their rents. Um, I mean, they are, they have politicians spouting the company line. They, they are very, very good at, at what they do. And that those efforts have helped preserve this law for, like I said, a century. Now, what right. has been the result of now and, and it's all on national security grounds. So it's very similar in, in a lot of ways to the arguments you're hearing now with respect to medical goods and pharmaceuticals. Um, right. Must have this this domestic base, this manufacturing base, the shipbuilding base. For now, for them, it's military issues for you know having a navy and that kind of stuff. But here, it's of course for for pan, pandemic response and all of that, right? So the, the the result of the Jones Act has been a slow and steady destruction of the U.S. merchant marine fleet. Um, There are very few ships these days that are actually able to be called up for service. Um, During the Gulf War, for example, we had to borrow ships from other countries. (laughs) Uh, At the same time, U.S. shipping costs are astronomical. Um, It costs like five times as much to build a ship in the United States than it does um, to build them elsewhere. Um, And at the same time, these restrictions create pretty substantial price increases for the costs of goods to sh- ship to places that are are waterbound, like Puerto Rico and Hawaii and Alaska and the rest. Um, they increase prices in the US to a lesser to the contiguous US to a lesser extent, but they still do in- lead to price increases there. So let's apply all of those things. Oh, and and in general, the US merchant marine fleet, the shipbuilding industry is thought of as being pretty kind of old and decrepit. Um, keeping ships in service long after their retirement date that kind of stuff so now let's apply that to the medical device and pharmaceutical industries where you want low prices really high levels of innovation and of course abundant supply well you can i think hopefully see the the problems here that you know again creating a jones act for medical goods Requiring American purchases, requiring um, you know all these kind of domestic production um, would would result likely in a a kind of zombie industry that spends a lot on lobbying and not much on innovation, um, and of course increases the cost of critical essential medical supplies during non-pandemic times. So um, that strikes me as a very bad idea. Uh, and again, you're seeing of really significant push from from the administration from people in congress um to to have this kind of repatriation of our supply chains regardless of the fact that the data actually showed that at, in 2018 about 70% of all american consumption was of domestically produced goods, we're seeing domestic companies right now ramping up production. Uh, is it seamless and perfect? No, but it's it's not nearly as catastrophic as as people claim. Um, and of course, again, you know we're in a once in a lifetime, hopefully, uh, situation.
0: Um,
1: if I was talking to
0: a friend of mine, who's um, in, he's a major businessman. I don't want to like out him here. Uh, who is involved in private equity with a lot of midsize companies and that kind of thing. And he was saying, you know, the on the business side, you know, they're planning on lots of companies, regardless of what the policy framework is going to be, they're planning on bringing a lot of their supply chain stuff home or at least out of China. Yeah. And that's going to happen regardless of. I mean, that's one of the things that's sort of frustrating across this whole period right now is this assumption by by many on the left and the right that that the policymakers have these tools that allow them to actually do the things they're talking yeah. about. When in reality, it's it's much more complicated, and there's a lot of lag time, and it has to do more with signaling than it has to do with actually make it you know willing things to happen but one of the points he was making to me is that the tool and die stuff and a couple of those kinds of things America's just basically gotten out of a lot of those businesses to a large extent and we don't we literally don't know how to recreate that stuff at least not quickly here and we don't have the latest ip to do it even if we wanted to and it's it's so this idea that you can just flip a switch yeah. and pull all our supply chains home it's just not true. So that even if you are a hardcore hawk, right. Which I I'm, i kind of
1: get, you still want to buy your companies a little time right. to be able to like adjust here. Yeah. And and see two points there, I think that are really important. One is that I'm I'm not opposed at all to a, a free market uh decoupling or diversification. I mean, to the extent that multinational companies want to move out of China uh, of their own volition, go for it. I'm I'm more concerned about creating a kind of domestic apparatus, a legal apparatus that's actually going to force American uh, companies and consumers to um, to locate here or to purchase to buy American. I think those types of policies have tons of negative consequences, um, al- again, along the lines of the Jones Act. But to the extent that these companies want to diversify um, and do this over a, a longer term, um, go for it. Um, the um, the other issue you bring up is is something I've, I've mentioned a few times, is that, you know, one of the big problems with the Trump administration's protectionism is how ham-handed it was, is that I could craft an, a hawkish economic nationalism platform that, that creates, uh, at least a realistic possibility of this type of, of, uh, diversification or decoupling happening. And instead we got basically just blanket tariffs on toasters, um, and, and baby clothes and, 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 and did it overnight. Um, you know, in, in which, like, as you said, you know, changing supply chains takes, at least a year, Um, you know, you talk to companies in this space, you look at the comments that that have been put on the record um, in all of these various proceedings, and they say, look, I would love to leave China, um, but I have to qualify suppliers, I have to find uh, a manufacturing location, I have to do all of this stuff. And that's going to take me at least, you know, 12 to 16 months. And so they put all these comments on the record, and then tariffs came down 90 days later. Um, At best, in some cases, it was something like 45 days, which just creates, of course, just a massive shock. Um, to right. the businesses. And then because now these American companies are paying the tariffs, sorry to those out there that think China pays them, um, they now don't have the capital to invest in any sort of reshoring they might have done anyway. Um, they have less capital for innovation, they have less capital for payroll. There was a, a recent study that showed that, you know, in the coronavirus time, um, companies were having to choose between uh, keeping folks on payroll or paying the tariffs that they had come due. Um, and there's been a push for some tariff deferral, which the administration has thus far denied. And and so, again, it's this very ham-handed approach to um, something that, that a more thoughtful hawk might have been able to do by giving an off-ramp, uh, a, a set amount of time, a transition period of sorts. Um, and and so instead, you're left with just a giant mess. So, I mean, this is something I think we've talked about on
0: every single time you've been on, because in part because of, you know, my Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> it drives me crazy right. to hear the president say, China is paying yeah you know, paying us millions or billions or trillions of dollars, blah, 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 blah. And the and we don't have to get fully back into the weeds on all this, right. but the one response you we often get, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth reminding people, is that there is some fraction yes. that if China can manufacture stuff so unbelievably cheap, they can actually lower the price for it to accommodate the tariff and still be competitive in our market. Right. What, what are the products that that's true for? How much of the tariff is actually being absorbed by them? Like what, what is the current state of the study on this stuff?
1: Well, so, so far, it's the, I haven't seen any updated studies from, from uh, earlier this year. Uh, but as of, as of, say, January of this year, it was still American consumers paying upwards of 90, above 95% of the tariff cost. Um the only products where you're seeing uh, an actual you know China eating the tariff of sorts are going to be those products that have really substantial quantities outside of of China um, substantial mm-hmm. production. And you know this again gets to a bit of the, you know the the Trump administration trade policy is, all sorts of contradictions, but one of the the latest contradictions that I, I enjoy is the claim that a we are utterly dependent on China for medical goods, but b China is paying the tariffs on these medical goods. That both of those things cannot be correct. If we are utterly dependent, then they have no reason to lower their prices uh, because mm-hmm. they know that American consumers need these things, particularly right now, and they're just going to eat the tariffs. So. Um, it, on, in the medical goods space, though, the the so the thing that I is important to reiterate is that we're not nearly as dependent as as what you're seeing. Um, there's a ton of domestic production of these products as well, um, but it still appears at this point that there's not a lot of um, uh, actual lowering of prices in China to to absorb the tariff. And and you know part of this I think is for practical reasons. Um, you know these things are typically Uh, sold at these goods are typically sold pursuant to long-term contracts. And those contracts don't, they have prices in them and they don't allow for, um, you know, or the Chinese manufacturers are not going to simply say, okay, you got us, we'll lower our prices. So um, it takes some time for that stuff to work out, even where there is the potential for alternative supply.
0: Um, You know, speaking of alternative supply though, um, one of the things that has really helped everybody get through this pandemic and the lockdown is doordash yeah we've been down here in florida now for a little while and um one of the ways that we've actually learned how to figure out where the restaurants are and what they are because you know i mean i know charlie cook lives around here but he he can't be trusted for culinary advice he's from britain um and one of the useful things is actually just look through doordash because they're they've all the local restaurants around here have really stepped up to be able to do either curbside or or home delivery. And um, it was a great way to sort of uh, support local restaurants and also get fed, which I know looking at me, you wouldn't expect, but I I, I do like to eat. Um, You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you food you're craving right now, right to your door. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, And your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the US, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left at your door. Our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for their first month. When you download the DoorDash app and enter code remnant, not dingo for reasons too mysterious for me to understand remnant is the code that's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month. When you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code remnant, R-E-M-N-A-N-T don't forget. That's code REMNANT for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. We thank DoorDash for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, which is your code. All right, so uh, I want to, even though, because we're so cool, we could talk about this all day and it's so fascinating, um, I do want to move on to some other stuff, but uh, your favorite senator, uh, Senator Josh Hawley, had a piece in the New York Times recently right? calling for getting out of the WTO. Right. Um why 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 are you against America being being good and smart and great again and want to be a lick spittle to
1: the chaicom right uh paymasters well, yeah, so the I'll start with some of the the reasons why the WTO is actually good capital G and then i'll I'll get more into hallway stuff as well so you know the WTO is the was was created in 1995, but is much much older. Really, you know, it it started in the 1940s. It was a U.S.-led endeavor um, in the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade. The idea, the whole concept behind the the, the GAT, was to have countries um, enter into kind of non-discriminatory trade agreement to prevent uh, a, another world war. So guys like Cordell Hall, who was secretary of state back then, um, and uh, the the UK government and a few others said, look, um, our world wars keep happening. And in large part, it's because we keep uh, dividing up into regional trading blocks. And then um, these you know, types of uh, regional trading blocks uh, create kind of a, a basis or they help foment um, conflict, armed conflict. So, let's try to have everybody just agree to a very basic set of rules related to tariffs. And, contrary to what Senator Hawley said, the WTO does not mandate free trade. It does not mandate tariff liberalization. That is something that members agreed to voluntarily. So, uh, fast forward 60 years, members saw it in their own interests to maintain this system. Um, they saw it in their own interests to lower their trade barriers. Um, they they did that in part because they were getting new market access abroad. They did it in part because it's just, you know, trade liberalization is pretty good in general. Um, and you have seen studies that have shown that the the creation of the multilateral trading system um has been extremely beneficial for uh, a, a decline in uh, armed conflicts world wars that kind of stuff um, but also uh, has significant economic benefits for the United States and for other countries now since 95 you've seen a lot of countries join the WTO among them China um, and as part of China's accession it agreed to all sorts of of what we call WTO plus commitments. And during that period of China's accession, they, they lowered their tariffs dramatically. They engaged in all sorts of economic reforms. These are things that we would think we we want China to do. So the WTO is actually uh, helping in that regard. However, the WTO is a member-driven organization. Um, the WTO has no police force. There is no independent um, investigative body Basically, the WTO is a venue for members to bring their disputes, to negotiate new rules, all that kind of stuff. But the problem was that after the WTO was created, um, members really didn't value new negotiations. And unfortunately, the United States, particularly in the 2000s, didn't bring as many disputes against China as I would have liked. Um, And Uh, Even though our track record at the WTO, again, contra Josh Hawley, is um, extremely impressive. The United States wins upward of 90% of the cases it brings. Members tend to comply with those decisions. That's another really neat thing about the WTO. Members value the system so much that they voluntarily comply. When you lose a case, Members voluntarily changed their their whatever offending measure was in place. And even China was doing this. The problem is we only brought like 15, 20 cases or so, um, whereas we should have brought a, a lot more. So, so. To, to summarize WTO has been net plus for geopolitical reasons, has been a net plus for economic reasons, um, helping to integrate economies and help to, you know, raising living standards around the world. Uh, a recent study showed that U S withdrawal from the WTO would cost trillions of dollars, um, uh, and including, uh, hundreds of billions in the United States. Um, and that, you know, the, uh, Dispute settlement system has been extremely effective in encouraging members to voluntarily change their their offending trade behavior. Um, is the WTO perfect? No, there are actually um, a lot of flaws. You know, we need new negotiations on things like services and state-owned enterprises and other things like that. Um, we need some some tweaks to various development rules, but throwing out the baby with the bathwater is just simply idiotic, um, and particularly idiotic going back to the Holly op-ed. Um, when you consider that there is no viable alternative, um, and that's really, I think the, the most frustrating thing, leaving all of the factual errors aside, um, and the half truths in that op-ed and Holly's subsequent tweet storm, which was equally bad. Um, the, the, he concludes with the classic, we'll find something better. Well, what is better The you know, WTO has 164 member nations, uh, the United States couldn't even seal a TPP deal with twelve nations. Um, the United States is now furiously trying to reconstruct the TPP, and and has done a extremely subpar job, achieving half deals here and there. Um, with, for example, Japan, uh, the United States couldn't even complete a deal with the European Union, um, and of course, Trump's EU trade deal has has. Become vaporware. There's no deal there either. So the idea that we're going to leave a uh, a functioning but imperfect multilateral system and forge out on our own and create some new trade agreement with all of our allies is just insanity. Um, and it really reveals, I think, a, a problem with a lot of populist trade policy is that they they hint on a half. Truth of sorts, being you know the wto the wTO's imperfections or uh, job losses caused by by uh, foreign competition, and then their solutions are either um bad protectionism, the Jones act the rest, or non-existent, this kind of mythical something better. I um, and it leaves us the uh, the free trader side of things um in a, a really unenviable position of just simply. Um, having to fight ghosts um, or uh, even worse um, being accused of being pro Chi-Com propagandists because we simply point out the errors um, on you know in Holly's op-eds and in the rest of populist trade policy
0: yeah so that, that, that's a good uh, uh, segue point um, when you know I'm, I'm a fan of JD Vance's I don't want to the, I mean, I didn't say friend. I'm, I'm an acquaintance of J.D. Vance's. I think he still has an affiliation with AEI, which is interesting given what he's been writing lately. Um, but when G- people like J.D. write this stuff about how Washington think tanks that were all basically in the pocket of yeah. big business and China-dependent business and the Chai comms and China trade, I, I mean, I honestly don't know what he's no. talking about in terms of like, Maybe everyone shuts up when I enter the room, but I just don't know. None of my colleagues, you know, I mean, like he basically at one point described exactly what Yuval Levin does at AEI to say that no one does this anymore. Right. And, um, uh, and so there's this huge sort of straw man thing and so much of, of what JD and what Holly and a lot of these guys are doing, um, yeah. But given that you are arguably the <laughs> foremost globalist, free trading, right. cosmopolitan, intellectual think tanker, libertarian think tanker around, do you sometimes feel that they're all like
1: deliberately at great length just subtweeting you personally? I, I Yes, I do, actually. And what's funny is... Um, I love being called a Beltway libertarian when I live in North Carolina. Um, yeah. Always a great, hilarious subtweet there. But but yeah, and you know the 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 lack of nuance, the straw manning, the lack of concrete solutions is extremely. Um, frustrating, and it's pretty- and also the attacking of motives. I mean,
0: that's the part right. that drives me crazy, you know. Right,
1: and and it's extremely frustrating because for, for a lot of reasons. One, of course, I mean, look, yeah, impugning of motives. Like, I I can't cite enough NBR. NDER economic papers and on on trade and war or on the actual economic impacts of of the WTO or of free trade generally or of the China shock. No, no, no. I can't actually do those things. I can't actually raise principled objections to uh, protectionism and and the corruption that breeds or anything. No, no, no. It's simply because I've been paid off by some, you know, either the Chai or George Soros or, or whatever. Um, now that's frustrating. But I think the other frustrating thing is I think that a lot of the kind of economic nationalist folks are operating on a different level in the sense that I don't think Josh Hawley cares about the WTO, really. I don't think he cares about withdrawing from the WTO. I think he wants to be seen as caring about the or or being against the globalists and being Mm -hmm. against this mythical international body that almost has the same initials as the World Health Organization. Um, And so he can be against the bad globalist stuff. And then when the libertarian side or whatever you want to call it corrects his errors, um, then he has an instant credibility because he's being attacked by the libertarian elites or the globalist elites. Um, and it's even better when you have, uh, some state Chinese state media guy, uh, posted a Cato critique of the Hawley op-ed. And of course, then now Cato and the libertarians and the free traders have now become tools of the Chinese state, right? Right. So there's no actual engaging on substance. It is all this kind of signaling exercise and an exercise in negative partisanship. I am good because I'm fighting the bad. And look, the bad are critiquing me, ergo, I am good. Now, how I can engage on that is it's it's very like I said, frustrating, because if I engage on the merits, then again, i'm I'm accused of attacking, I mean you know elites attacking the the champion of the working man. But if I don't engage, then you allow this nonsense to kind of fill the vacuum. Um, And so it really creates an unwinnable situation. Again, and it's only amplified by then being accused of being a paid shill for the multinational corporations or foreign governments or whatever. Um, When, you know, I've held these views more or less since the mid-90s. And so the idea that, you know, I'm some tool for having a consistent position for now 20 plus years, um, that, that is evidence of, I, I don't know how of my, um, my, my financial backing. It's just, it's all crazy. So
0: one piece of advice, the next time you're off in Stad or wherever it is, you globalists, you know, right. One percenters and, you know, gather to plot your schemes and put chemicals in our water supply that steal our, Precious bodily fluids or we're whatever it is on the you do.
1: Vaccine now
0: remember, we're on the we're on we're
1: looking at the vaccine.
0: Oh, that's right. The, the the if you take the vaccine, you're all of a sudden gonna have to um uh buy Windows Explorer. Correct. Um, but um one piece of advice for you, like yeah. I mean this is this is a free piece of advice. You you take it to the corridors of power, you you explain this to Colonel Sanders, whoever it is that you deal with. Um the next time you create some globalist. Sorry, globalist uh, international organization. Um, don't put the word "world" in it. Yeah, it's triggering. Call it, you know, the, uh, you know, the the bulwark for uh, family and and homeland organization. You know, <laughs> give it some 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 good sort of folk and fatherland and right. And, and, right. and and language to it. You know, it sort of like reminds me of in *Parks and Rec*. There's a great episode where it turns out that the town of Pawnee, Indiana, was once uh, controlled by a an alien god cult um, <laughs> named Zorp, and the these Zorp worshippers were apocalyptic and they expected him to come down with his lava breath and destroy the planet. And but they called their cult. They didn't call it the Zorp cult. They called themselves the Reasonableists <laughs> because that way anybody who attacked them seemed like they were
1: anti-reason. <laughs> yeah,
0: <that's a> <laughs> you guys point. gotta think like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe we need to go back to the name GATT, the general agreement on tariffs and trade. Then, you know, there's no there's no uh, world in there. Um, you know, you raise a good point. Um it it and the funniest or the most frustrating thing is the the attacks on the WTO have got to be some of the most misguided because it's just completely fails to misunderstand or to understand what the WTO is. You know, I, I mentioned before, but the WTO is this kind of relatively small organization in Geneva that essentially provides a venue for a bunch of countries. Um, and it provides a baseline set of, of trade rules. Um, and it's not part of the UN. It's not this like sprawling international bureaucracy. There are not guys with little blue helmets that that show up in Africa or wherever. Um, it's, it's such a benign uh, organization. Um, not it, of course it has its imperfections, but um, to to create this globalist straw man out of the WTO, uh, is a really, I mean, for those who understand the organization, it's it's downright comical. Um, the problem, of course, is that, that these attacks have uh, real potential. And this, again, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about trying to corral the populist animal spirits. Um, I mean, look, you know, maybe uh, this WTO withdrawal thing is thought of as crazy and is disregarded, but maybe it starts to gather steam and then, and then, you know, what, do you, what happens? Um, that would be very bad. Um, okay.
0: All right, So we have a hard out for you. Cause you have to go to one of your, uh, special fancy hotel meetings with clever cheese and, and bottled water. I can't pronounce. So, uh, very quickly. Um, you, um, I can see you from here. You have very short hair, in yeah. part because you raffled off yes. your hair, basically, to raise money for a food bank. I contributed. Yeah. Um, How much did you raise? What were the rules? Because I'm thinking about doing this. As yeah. you can see, you
1: know, I look like I just, I've been in a coma for six months. You do have a Unabomber thing going on at this <laughs> point. Pretty sweet. Um, So what we did was, I was just going to buzz. Buzz my head because I, you know, haven't seen a barber in two months. Uh, I miss him. Um, so, uh, someone on Twitter suggested I do a mohawk. That seemed to gather some steam. So, I announced that what I would do is leave. I, I would I would leave the mohawk for every five hundred dollars we raised. I'd leave the mohawk for a day. So, okay. if we raised five hundred bucks, I kept the mohawk for a day. And of course, posted pictures. Um, we ended up raising about four thousand um, nice. dollars, only like thirty six hours. So I also created a a, a hard at, a hard out of sorts, saying, "Okay, we're going to leave the, the the bidding, the donating open for x amount of time. It's about two days, um, and you have to post a receipt." In the replies of of the tweet, the original tweet. Um, so I just did that, and the response was really awesome. Um, and uh, I imagine someone with um with your reach, Mr. Goldberg, could really help a <laughs> lot of hungry people. Um, and so I really highly recommend it. And quite frankly, um, let's face it, you're a Gen Xer, I'm a Gen Xer. It's every Gen X guy's dream to have a Mohawk at some point in our lives and this provided an excellent excuse. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did it. I thought I looked actually kind of badass, um, and, uh, kept it for about a week. I, I, and, uh, you know, all was good. And so you went full bald around the Mohawk. Track. So I, mean, I did the tightest guard you could get on the side. So, okay. Zero guard. So it left a little bit of stubble, but, yeah. and then, went pretty high up, um, which actually carving your own mohawk is very easy, except the back. Um, uh-huh. you have to have someone help with the back. Uh, that is, yeah, the- I'd have my daughter do it. I think. Yeah so. yeah. so, and, uh, so yeah, just take the, the straight zero guard or whatever and go up the sides and then you kind of just carve into it and that's it. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was fun.
0: Yeah. All right. So, you know, you know, what else was fun? watching things on Netflix with ExpressVPN. So we all know that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But here's something you may not know. You can also use ExpressVPN to watch movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Now that so many of us are stuck at home, it's only a matter of time until you run out of stuff to watch on the American Netflix. So now you can go and watch stuff from using ExpressVPN to binge uh, you know, Rick and Morty from Netflix France or Brooklyn Nine-Nine from Netflix Canada. Express VPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. Express VPN works with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There's never any buffer or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on the big screen, wherever you are. So, again, with the code REMNANT, not Dingo, if you visit expressvpn.com REMNANT, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of uh, Remnant. So Scott, it was great to have you here, I appreciate it. We didn't get a chance, I know you gotta go, but we didn't get a chance to talk about nachos wow. and what may be the biggest news in the nacho world Yeah. In the last fifty, not not since the the great nacho kitchen fire of nineteen seventeen, um, <laughs> has there been news like this, where Guy Fieri or Guy Fietti—I never understand why it's Fietti—and there are only Rs in his name, uh, but Guy Fietti and um, Bill, Murray. Bill Murray are going to do like a nacho off.
1: This yeah. is huge. Yeah, I'm really worried about this. I have a few minutes to to expound on this, but I I. Uh, I'm really worried that so Guy Fieri is known for trash can nachos, which uh-huh. if you could have a if there were the physical manifestation of of a something I oppose, it would be Guy Fieri's trash can nachos. Um, you know, it's really it's it's. It terrifies me. So I'm I'm really- worried. What if we put export controls on
0: trash yeah. can nachos? Would that bother you even more? It would.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, oh, actually no, because it would discourage production of trash can nachos. Ergo, I, I, w- I would probably support them. Anyway, um, what I'm really worried about, so we know where a guy is going to stand. He's gonna come out with this sloppy mess of giant bar nachos that's really going to be stomach turning. Um, I'm worried about Bill Murray because so Bill's a Chicago guy, and I'm, mm-hmm. I don't think he has the geographic uh, background. Uh, I don't think he was raised right. And so I think he might come out also with this kind of sloppy mess of nachos. And then, you know, it's like the Iran Iraq war of nacho offs, um, mm-hmm. which, is, you know, I don't know whom I'll, I'll root for. Um, and it'll, it'll just all be very depressing. Um. Yeah. Just so listeners
0: understand where you're coming from, you are one of America's foremost, perhaps America's foremost, <laughs> proponent of individually made nachos. Correct. Each one should be done. It should be curated, uh, to a tee individually. No wholesale. Yeah. Or even regional. Nacho creation. Each one needs to have exactly the right ingredients well, done. look, I,
1: if- I, I think ideally each one is individually dressed. But but more than anything, it's just simply a single layer of chips that has that each chip having a little bit of bean, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of meat. And then, of course, you serve the guac and sour cream and pico de gallo on the side. So growing up in Texas, this was not some sort of... Um, uh, cult. This was normal. This was life. This was everyday life in Texas was this nachos, the real nachos. Then I moved out East, um, and went to UVA and went to a Mexican restaurant in Charlottesville, by the way, Mexican in central Virginia back then, not very good. Um, and, and saw this pile of chili and I think there was queso on it. It was, and, and I, I started crying there, at the Mm -hmm. table. Uh, and ever since then I've been scarred and I've tried to make it part of my life's work to spread, um, the gospel about the real nachos, um, which we know from history that actually is the correct way nachos were, are, are supposed to be prepared. Um, and guys like Guy Fieri, who seems to be an, an excellent person, um, Mm -hmm. But just is so misguided about nachos, Um, and it's it's. I'm 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 a little like I said. I'm a little scared for this contest. Uh, But of course, we'll be we'll be um, glued to my television when it happens.
0: Yeah, but I gotta say, I am. You know, I was pro free trade before we ever met. So that your biggest influence on me wasn't there. And um, (laughs) uh, but. You, you've basically, I don't want to, it's very I'm very reluctant to give you full credit just because it's not allowed these days. But, because um, I know you're going to then pocket it and run away with it on Twitter. Of course. Of course. But I have to admit, because because I believe that truth is, as high, is its own justification, you have basically brought me around on the nacho question. Not necessarily on the historical roots of the authentic versus inauthentic yeah. nacho, I I can take your word for that, but frankly, I don't care. (laughs) Um, I think that the individually prepared nacho, when you do it, you actually get some assembly line efficiencies going. It's not that much harder. And it is vastly superior to the, the, because the final 20% of, as you put it, trash can nachos might as well, I mean, it, it is the stuff that, you would expect to find on a dumpster floor exactly
1: you end up with yeah. the soggy sloppy chip or the hard undressed chip with nothing it's just a it's a disaster but i wasn't i i thank you for those kind words it's a it takes a big man to admit this um i'm sure caleb and nick i wish we had video because i haven't beamed like this in quite a while <laughs> it, um on the video i i'm i'm truly i'm i mean i'm I'm about to tear up here. I it's <laughs> excellent, excellent to hear. We're winning converts, hearts and minds, Jonah. Hearts and. See minds. now, you, you could put this into your your scholar report at Cato about your impact. Right, I, you know, this is wait. this is big
0: stuff. I can't wait. Yeah. All right, so Scott Lindseycomb, thanks again for coming on, especially at the last minute, and thanks for tolerating the weirdness of this recording. Um, My pleasure. Okay, so uh, I apologize if the extraneous noises were were bad. I have. I have such confidence, though, in Caleb and Nicholas that they are going to take the worst of it out of it so that you will not hear, for example, the the howler monkeys that came by. Um, you will not hear the various tribes of Zul washi- worshipers chanting Zul, Zul, because fortunately that stuff was said when uh, Scott was talking. And so we can sort of bring down that audio, but occasionally you might hear one of these trucks, um, which of course are run by the world trade organization and WHO to deliver people to the FEMA camps. Um, but, uh, um, so I apologize for any of the audio stuff. Um, I have to say, I was quite surprised by the, the, the positive feedback on my weird digression about, um, it, uh, false advertising in the animal kingdom, um, did not, I, I kind of just wanted to be self indulgent because I was tired of talking about the normal stuff and, um, people dug it. So if you haven't read it yet, check it out. Uh, if you have read it, just, you can just keep hitting refresh like a monkey in a cocaine study on it. Um, even though we actually don't really care about about traffic, but what we do care about is, uh, subscribers, So if you know somebody who might like the dispatch, who might like the G-File, even just the free one on Fridays, please feel free to sign people up, recommend it, forward it. Uh, If you can support the G-File or the Remnant or the dispatch on Twitter, uh, that's really helpful to us. Our best ambassadors, our best salespeople, our um, members of the dispatch community itself, and we need your help. Um, And we appreciate your help. And uh, not sure what's going on for the rest of the week. Um, I'm starting to go a little, just a little crazy, I have to admit. Um, It doesn't help that when I wake up in the morning and I see myself in the mirror, as I was saying to Scott, um, I'm kind of terrified of the person that I see. Um, You know, I make jokes all the time on here about waking up covered in somebody else's blood in some motel or something. I now look more like that guy than I have ever looked. I'm still not covered in blood. I am covered in dog hair, but that's a different story. Um, and uh, so it, getting some, you know, support and positive feedback from folks helps, you know, keep me going because, uh, you know, I just, I'm I'm starting to come apart at the seams um, a little bit. And uh, other than that uh please go to the dispatch.com for all the usual reasons and 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 you know frankly for some quirky reasons uh, you know come to the dispatch.com and sign up uh for our various products and newsletters simply because vests have no sleeves i mean i don't you know your motives are your own i don't question your motives i just you know i want you to uh you know have the right actions so with that um thanks again and i'll see you next time no you won't this
1: is a podcast sure. Uh, (laughs) You really really do need to do the Mohawk for charity, Johnny. You would raise a lot of money Yeah, I know, I know, I know It's the right thing to do